The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only. They are not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on The Lab Report, we're going to talk to Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Exercise physiologist, researcher, speaker, author, personal trainer, coach, host of the podcast, adjunct professor. Hmm. He sounds busy. Yeah. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Well, I really appreciated Imaginary Anthony doing the disclaimer. <laughs> he doesn't exist. He's going to love that. He, is, he doesn't exist. He's going to love He's a ghost. That. That's so Anthony. <laughs> Hello. Hey, Michael Chapman. How are you today? I'm doing great, Patty Devers. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I love that this is taking off, that people are wanting oh, to yeah. do the disclaimer. Send your disclaimers. Yes. Yeah. Do you, you, can, you know, we can even print it out for you. Maybe put it on a social media post oh, so you can read idea. off of it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, get your voice on this little <laughs> podcast here. If you're a listener, that'd be awesome. Uh, speaking of podcasts, that's uh-huh. what this is. It's it is. A, it's a show called The Lab Report. It's brought to you by Genova Diagnostics. It's where we talk about things like specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, functional and integrative medicine, all that fun stuff. And if you like fun stuff, maybe you can subscribe to this little quirky show. And who Go doesn't like iTunes. fun stuff? <laughs> Go to iTunes and Spotify, rate, review, you know, give us some stars. Write some mm, words there. Yummy stars. Give us some feedback. Give us all the stars, please. Yep. And if you have additional feedback or if you have a recording you want to send to us, uh-huh. podcast at gdx.net is the, uh, the email address. You can do that. Well, you know, Michael, we've been doing this show. We're in our fourth year now. That's nuts. 250-some-odd episodes. Yeah, 245. Right? And our guest today was one of the OGs. And oh, I yeah. appreciate that. You know, he was our friend before we had friends. That's right. Dr. Mike T. Nelson. And so he so graciously has agreed to come back and visit with us again. We have lots to talk about. I could talk to this guy forever. I mean, Seriously. he's got so much expertise and he's so smart as the way that he combines different concepts of uh, exercise physiology yeah. and just general physiology. We're going to talk about this concept called physiologic flexibility, which is like right up, right up the alley, right? <laughs> it sounds awesome. But you know, the guy's a teacher at heart too, right? So he explains things so well. Yeah. So I'm really excited to talk to him and we'll get down into some good details. And I know we're Fizz gushing about flex. him, Yeah. but uh, he's just also so down to earth. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Real person. Yeah. Appreciate that. Let's call him up. Cool. Michael, our friend is back. I know. Dr. Mike T. Nelson agreed to come back and talk to us again. It's awesome. I know. And for those of you who are not familiar, Dr. Mike T. Nelson has spent 18 years of his life learning how the human body works, specifically focusing on how to properly condition it to burn fat and become stronger, more flexible, and healthier. Dr. Nelson has a PhD in exercise physiology, a BA in natural science, and an MS in biomechanics. He is an exercise physiologist, researcher, speaker, author, personal trainer, coach, and host of the Flex Diet podcast. He's also an adjunct professor and a member of the American College of Sports Medicine. Nice. He's pretty busy. Yeah. Busy guy. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. Dr. Nelson has been called in to share his techniques with top government agencies. The techni- techniques he's developed and the results Mike gets for his clients have been featured on international magazines, scientific publications, and on podcasts and websites across the globe. Yeah. And with that, welcome back to the show, Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Yeah. Oh, wow. 
Thank you so much for the intro. Well, I'm <laughs> glad to be back. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, a lot. I got to talk to this guy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so much has happened too since we last spoke. Um, yeah. Especially over at MikeTNelson.com, you've been busy. On your last appearance, you talked about uh, the Flex Diet certification, which has just reopened. I th- we have that right. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, yes. so remind us what you mean by the Flex Diet and why. What's the certification? Uh, what are people going to get with that? Yeah. So it's. It kind of a mashup of two terms of metabolic flexibility and flexible dieting. I'm sure you guys would probably agree that having a more flexible approach in reality is going to be more useful for the vast majority of people. And even high-level athletes, like if you're hitting stuff at 90% compliance, that's that's pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe a few people need to get better than that, but you know, most people, if you're hitting at 90%, you're you're good. And the flexible component is both on the metabolism side, so your physiology, which would be metabolic flexibility, and then kind of more on the practice, some of the psychology on uh, flexible dieting. So the analogy I use with clients is that a lot of times in nutrition recovery coaching, it's you work with the client and you're like, oh, okay, you need to eat you know, all your vegetables and your protein and all, do all this stuff. And the expectation is if you were to teach someone to go bowling, that you're expecting them to just start throwing strikes from like day one. Mm-hmm. Like you're supposed to hit all the pins. You're supposed to be perfect. And this approach is more like, have you ever seen the little bumpers they inflate in the side? Yeah. <laughs> right. It's more like bumper bowling. <laughs> right. Where your goal is like, you can weave and go down the alley. That's fine. And your goal is just to just start knocking down some pins. Mm-hmm. Like your job as a coach is to let them have some variability that make sure they're getting the goal accomplished on the other end. And for God's sakes, make sure they're not, you know, five alleys down in a different bowling league, like across the city, doing whatever next week. Um, so trying to do that from both the physiology side and kind of more the the practice of how do you actually do that when you're working with someone. That's a great analogy. I I haven't thought of it that way. Yeah. And especially, you know, we think of, we call it things like... Um, lifestyle change right and that right. that mm-hmm. gives you this idea that like it's just an on off switch right? it's just a change but what right. you're referring to it as a practice it's a lifestyle practice and i think yes. that's that's a great uh way to look at it it is it is yeah because yeah, i mean yeah. we all know it's hard yeah. right, right. So the reality is it's not easy and nobody wants to say that like everything wants to be like you know this quick fix just you know demonize these foods and you're you know you'll have six-pack abs and be healthy or whatever but <laughs> we all know that deep down inside that that's not not true it hasn't worked know, for me so. yet <laughs> no and if it was that easy then literally everyone would know what the thing was and everyone would do the thing mm-hmm. like it, it right. doesn't work that way right <laughs> totally and michael i've seen you bowl so i do know that this does not work for you but that being said <laughs> that being said we talk a lot of, we talk a lot about diet on this show and on the heels of what you just said, where do you stand within those various diet wars out there? Because I'm sure you get this a lot. Like, what are your stances mm-hmm. on keto and the whole demonization of various macronutrients? So what is your response to that? I'm sure you get this question a lot. Yeah, like the keto thing, I actually I actually made a flow chart for this because I got this question so often, <laughs> right? Because people will come up to you with zero context, zero anything right. else, and they'll, like, grab you at a seminar and like, hey, what do you think of keto? And I'm like, well. <laughs> Like for my first question, the flowchart is for what, right? Are you have a disease process? You're trying to work with a physician mm-hmm. to potentially alter, or are you trying to be more healthy or do you have a performance goal? Cause those are all three radically different contexts. So in terms of keto, for example, 
on the if you're working with a physician you know i've done a whole program through the care institute about the use of ketones ketone esters potentially ketone, ketogenic diets for potentially concussion traumatic brain injury mm -hmm. those types of things because very very interesting data mm -hmm. however on the little chart it says you know are you a highly competitive athlete and it says what sport if it's speed and power based the next question is do you like winning <laughs> <laughs> the answer is yes then Keto is probably not the best approach for you because you're going to lose, you know, five to eight to 10% off your top end speed and power by doing that approach. Mm -hmm. Again, it doesn't mean that it's a bad approach. It just means that if you want to win the CrossFit games or you're doing a shot put thrower or something that's high speed power, Metcons, that type of thing, the carbohydrates are your friend. Mm -hmm. So like shunning all carbohydrates, probably not going to be the best approach. Um, if it's more general population, then I'm like, what are your three favorite foods? If you're like, you know, steak, butter, and bacon, cool. Like keto might be, you know, potentially good for you. Mm -hmm. If you're like muffins, cake, and pasta, <laughs> uh, you probably don't want to do that. You can probably find better approaches. Um, so, it, But that's the answer nobody wants to hear, right? Because what they secretly want to know is, well, I've been doing keto and I love it. Why don't you agree with me? Right. Uh, right. Or right. I hate keto and why do you like it for like, right. you know, nobody wants to talk about the context of, you know, what is it actually being used for? But that's the only way you can give someone, in my opinion, more of an accurate answer to it. That's awesome. That's nuance. A great answer. Nuance between the extremes. And I uh -huh. think we can get the message out, Dr. Mike D. Nelson, if we put it on a shirt. And I think With we the can flow just chart? Put, Yeah, the absolutely. Put the flow chart on yeah. a shirt. And there we go. We've got we're on our way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um well, and this other thing that you teach the concept of, you mentioned it before, physiologic flexibility. So, I mean, mm -hmm. obviously with the word flexible, um, we know kind of your just general musculoskeletal flexibility, and some people might be familiar with some idea around metabolic flexibility. But can you talk about this physiologic flexibility a little bit more specifically? Yeah, so my research was in metabolic flexibility, so how well your body uses fats, how well it uses carbohydrates, how well you can switch back and forth. And after doing that for, oh God, I started that like 15 years ago now, I started thinking, I'm like, okay, that was kind of a cool concept, but it really only applies to metabolism, mm -hmm. which is you know important. Mm -hmm. What if we take a flexible concept and we <clears throat> apply it to you as an entire human organism? So let's say you're pretty good at the basics, right? Probably questions you guys get all the time. Hey, you know, I'm pretty good at exercise. My sleep's pretty good. My nutrition's pretty good. Like, what do I do next? And you know, there's a litany of things that could be beneficial. Um, and so I started to think in that frame, in that context, okay, what framework would I use to run things through to decide if it's useful or not, right? Because there could be an endless litany of supplements, you know, red light therapy, God knows whatever newest biohack, whatever. Mm -hmm. Some of it's useful, some of it's not. So I went back and said, okay, how do I believe the body is wired? And I believe that it's wired for survival. Like your physiology is set up with systems that are, at the end of the day, trying to keep you alive as long as possible. Now, they may be maladaptive in certain contexts, but the goal is, you know, just to be upright tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So if that's the context, cool. What parameters does your body have to hold extremely tight or else you're dead? All right. So those are things that we cannot have any variation, deviation, or at least not much. Those also are going to have backup systems. The backups are going to have backups. It's going to be a multi-redundant system. And what you end up with is temperature, or what these are called homeostatic regulators. Mm -hmm. 
right? Humans are homeotherms. Like we have to keep 98.6, it's actually about 97.7, but we can't vary, at least from our core temperature, more than a few degrees, either too warm or too cold, and just everything runs amok. The other one would be pH. If your pH gets skewed a little bit high or a little bit too low, again, you're in a, a complete world of hurt. The other one would be fuel systems, right? So we need, you know, have to operate within certain fuel systems. We could expand that to lactate and ketones if we want on the extreme ends. Mm -hmm. And the last one would be just air, like carbon dioxide and oxygen. We have to monitor both of those um, quite close. So those four systems, <clears throat> so temperature, pH, fuels, and air would be the four homeostatic regulators. So to me then, I'm like, okay, if those are kind of the main four, and you, you could add more to the list, but we know that they can be trained. We know that people can be better at cold water exposure, better at cold exposure, better tolerance to sauna, whether you're looking at heat acclimation performance, altitude, pH changes, whatever. We know that if you train these systems, the core value doesn't necessarily alter that much, but the range that you can put the human organism into gets a lot better. And so your expansion of capacity is a lot greater. And so my bias is that by training these areas, that you become a more resilient and just kind of overall harder to kill individual because you can go from maybe fasting to a high carb intake or you know ketone esters, or you could go from you know breath holds to some crazy cardiovascular conditioning or a sauna to a cold tub that you're not expecting that main parameter to change but your body can buffer these high amounts of these outside stressors. And over time, you actually become a more resilient person or organism because of that. I love that. And it's That's kind of like stressing those four systems sure. makes you less of yes. a fragile person. And then by training and using these levers, you can improve your, your physiologic flexibility. And I think of things, I've heard you speak on this. You know, we've been all over your website. I read all of your blogs. I listen oh, to your you. podcast. <laughs> I mean, we've been all over this. Mm. But I've heard oh. you talk about air, like oxygen and carbon yeah. dioxide, um, and the, the drive of respiration and the regulator of respiration being carbon dioxide. And in my mind, when we think about carbon dioxide being a, not a byproduct and not a waste product, is how do right. you use those things like the Wim Hof technique of, of breath to make you more physiologically flexible? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> okay. Um, and it is true. So you're exactly correct. Like most people when they go, oh my God, it's oxygen is the main regulator. And Yes and no. Like, do you absolutely need oxygen to live? 110%. But it turns out that the main regulator is actually carbon dioxide and that the backup to that is actually oxygen levels. And supposedly, I can't find this research study, but some people are more susceptible to what they call shallow water blackouts where you're mm. like, um, like breath holding competitions underwater and stuff like that, that their system doesn't have that uh, CO2 as a primary one, that oxygen is kind of the primary one, hmm. and they just go from operating to kind of losing consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, but for most people, we feel that level of CO2 going up. All right, so simple example, we'll get back to the Wim Hof thing. You just hold your breath. All right, so I hold my breath. Now, most people think, oh, it's because I'm not bringing in oxygen. And yes, that's part of the equation, but your metabolic processes are still running. Right, and the byproduct of that is carbon dioxide. So yes, oxygen is not coming in, but carbon dioxide levels are going up and up and up. And that's the primary driver of you wanting to breathe. And the way you can explain this is so Wim Hof method. So Wim Hof method or tumor breathing or superventilation method, whatever you want to use, 
is you're breathing in and out really, really, really fast. And when you do that, you're not really hyperoxygenating tissue, you're actually expelling and getting rid of more carbon dioxide. And then when you stop, if you measure how long you can safely hold your breath, do this lying down, <clears throat> don't do it in water, don't do it standing up <laughs> if you're not experienced, you'll find that you can hold your breath for a much longer period of time. And the reason you can is because you got rid of more carbon dioxide to start, hmm. right? Which hmm. is why if you look at uh, some like, you know, um, breath hold competitions and people that try to hold their breath and swim like, you know, super deep distance, you know, free divers, all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> There's different contexts of sometimes they will hyperventilate at the surface. Sometimes they won't. Sometimes they'll even use pure oxygen and people are like, oh, well, they're hyperoxygenating their tissue. Not really. They're actually getting rid of even more CO2, mm -hmm. which then does allow them to hold their breath longer. Again, the risks of that actually become exponentially higher, too, because what you're doing is you're trying to override some of those mechanisms. And so then your, your buffer zone gets kind of squished. Well, I, it's a good segue, too, because that's somewhat related to the pH system. And so, well, I mean, yes. it's, it's definitely related. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, you're talking about based carbon dioxide flexibility. What about pH flexibility? Like, are you using the same mechanisms to try and create more pH flexibility as well, the breathwork training and other things like that? Yep. So <clears throat> you can use breathwork, which works great. Um, so by, like, doing a super ventilation method, right? You can technically make your body a little bit more alkaline temporarily, right? Which does have some benefits. Um, so you can use breath work, you can use breath holds. Um, you can also use a lot of uh, aerobic training. So I'll do primarily aerobic training, and you can look at more of the high intensity spectrum down to just more long, slow distance zone two type stuff. And what you're dealing with there primarily is yes, ex expelling CO2, um, but also you can take devices and stick them on the muscle and see what is the muscle actually doing from an oxygen CO2 standpoint. So you can use like a Moxie device, which I have, <clears throat> stuff it over the muscle, sends out this little light through the muscle, and you can look at how well the muscle is oxygenated. Mm -hmm. And what you find is that classically I was taught that, oh, well, if you just get on a rower and you just go balls out for you know 30 seconds, that is a purely anaerobic event meaning that doesn't necessarily consume oxygen. The first time I saw this, I think it was Aaron Davis, like seven years ago, stuck this device on the muscle, and we're looking at the muscle level of oxygen. Starts off high at 85%. At the end of the 30 seconds, it's down to like 17%. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, uh-oh, what the? This device is a piece of crap. There's no <laughs> way, like, the muscle's not supposed to be using oxygen. What is this? Mm -hmm. And then later you find out, oh, yeah, it does pull oxygen at an incredibly high rate. Now, there's different mechanisms in the background that can produce energy at different rates with and without oxygen, et cetera. But almost all of performance is based on this scheme of using oxygen to different levels. And once you know that, you can then get fancy and try to maybe do some high-intensity stuff but have the duration be super short. <clears throat> so I want to maybe get the muscle better at this low-oxygen environment. So I'm going to go super hard like on a rower for 30 seconds. I'm going to literally drive down the oxygen level in the muscle very low. And then I generally start with complete recovery. So I'm going to let it just rest for two, three, sometimes four minutes, get all the way back up. And then I'm going to try to deplete it back down again. 
because what I want to do is expand both of those endpoints mm. um, again so that when the muscle is you know in a low oxygen environment it's literally more metabolically capable to handle it at that point because of the training what a lot of people do to start is they just keep driving it down and down and then their performance just starts going off pretty hard and they get really tired and they don't get as many benefits from it so i'd rather you know drive it down for a period of time let it recover completely and then kind of go again as opposed to just leaving it super low that makes sense and i think when we're, we're thinking about these levers that you're pulling like you're just saying you know expanding and, and and trying to build some resiliency here when we think about temperature i think mm -hmm. common sense is just you know cold immersion therapy or sauna is that kind of your reference there or do you use those levers differently you can use them differently <clears throat> um Depends on what adaptations you want for sport performance, but as a general human, mm -hmm. you can play with what I call intermittent exposure or chronic exposure. So chronic exposure would be, you know, maybe I'm going to turn the temperature down in my house a little bit, or I'm going to use like mm -hmm. use the Chili Sleep or the Sleep Me products. I'm going to drop my temperature sleeping at night, which a lot of times works better for temperature control, better sleep, but that's going to be over many hours. I can also do an intermittent thing, which would be even exercising in heat or sauna or cold. I can go into very cold air, like a cryo chamber, or I can go into cold water. Water is obviously going to pull more energy and more heat away. Um, I view those things as more intermittent exposures, and they have different benefits, heat shock proteins, cold shock proteins, a bunch of other stuff. Um, and the interesting part about the cold, I've realized, too, is that it's doing all of these things, like because you're your brain doesn't like your body to go out of out of these homeostatic ranges, right? Because at some level, the little reptilian part of your brain is like, hey, if we get too hot, we could die. Mm -hmm. Or, right. hey, if we stay too cold, we could die. Mm -hmm. And that's 100% true, right? <laughs> but for short, controlled periods of time, it's okay. Like before, uh, right before, right when COVID happened, I had taken a 15.6 um, freezer, cocked it, filled it up, filled it full of water, to create my own, you know, cold water immersion. A few issues, freezers aren't really designed to be filled with water, but you can make it work. <laughs> and my thought was, okay, I'm not going anywhere, I'm not traveling, I'm not teaching. I'll just do this every day for, you know, the time, who knows how long. Mm -hmm. I ended up doing it for almost a year. And my thought pattern was, okay, at the end, I'll have these better adaptations because I've done this. And on one hand, I did. I could stay in much colder water, way easier, not nearly as much change in heart rate, et cetera. However, right before I got in, my hypothesis was, okay, after a year of doing this, it'll be pretty easy. <laughs> you wouldn't be panicking like as much, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it gets easier, but man, even now, I just did it yesterday, there's still that hesitation right before you get in of like, this is going to suck. What am I doing? I'm an idiot. This is a dumb idea. So I realized that there's also the psychological benefit of doing the hard thing each day. Right. And I kind of grew to reframe it in terms of that lens because a lot of these if you get on a rower and you do repeated you know wind gates at 20 30 seconds or even doing a longer like 2k 5k you know wim hof method a lot of these things they're they're just not fun hmm. i mean mm. when you do them initially so that psychological thing of kind of training your brain to be like yes this is going to suck but we are going to be better for doing it it's a controlled environment it's a controlled stimulus um, I think that will actually transfer to other aspects of your life also. Taking the stairs, parking farther away, going to bed sooner, you mm -hmm. know. So I think there's a, a psychological transfer overall 
for the physiologic flexibility things too. That's there's, I have so many, it's, it's just fascinating. Right. Uh And I, one of the things you just said is really fascinating to me too. Just the fact that we can't really, the reptilian part of our brain doesn't, uh, it doesn't calm down. Like it doesn't adapt maybe in the way that we would think it would, (laughs) but then it's almost like that then creates more mental, like you're saying, like fortitude or, or, or capacity to push through, um, through these things, even like when you know that it's going to be as as horrible as it was the day before. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, And that's the beauty of the professor, like the prefrontal cortex of your brain, right? Because you can literally think your way through it. Like even just going to do exercise sometimes, like, you know, you do it long enough, you get to enjoy it. But I've had more than enough days where it's like, my goal is just to get into the garage and start lifting something. I don't feel real good. But I've done it enough that I know I will generally feel better as I get warmed up as I do it. I know once I'm done, even though I'm more tired, I will definitely feel better from it. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of almost future pace your way into it where if you only had that little reptilian part of your brain it's like no never do that like right. this is stupid right. right your your body's designed for efficiency like expending end it's just even weird now like with i don't train too many clients here anymore but i used to and i found like the more simulated work they did the better the results like yeah, i go you know hit a tire with a sledgehammer go carry some stuff up and down the street go push a car like the more work looking stuff they did the better their results were. And it's like, oh, wow, we've evolved so much as a society that people are paying me to have them go do simulated work now. Shitching. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. That's that's fascinating. Well, and the recovery part of it too. Well, I was going to say, it sounds like with what we've learned about the muscle in the last seven years and the oxygen depletion, I was like, are we going to have to change the terminology? I think everyone would freak out if we had to see like, actually, it's not anaerobic anymore. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, there's a big debate about about that, and so that's kind of one of my little, I don't say pet peeves, but I mean I've I've been guilty of you know, publishing articles, you know, reciting the other thing because when I was taught, it's like, hey, it's your on and off switch. You have your ATP, PC, you've got you know glycolysis that's good for only 30 to 60 seconds, and then you start using fat. And what you find is that they're not on and off switches; they're all like dimmer switches at different levels, mm-hmm. or almost thinking about them three-dimensionally as different like levels in a pool i have one big pool at the bottom that fills the next pool that fills the next pool Mm. right because if they weren't all interconnected the thing that's always bugged me is why can't we drive muscle glycogen levels down to just just zero like the lowest we can maybe get is 30 to 40 percent you know and that's under like really heinous you know circumstances and restricting carbohydrates etc so that probably tells us that the body is running through that in the background somehow, even like ketogenic diets, you know, whatever, like we just can't get below that level. And it turns out that all these processes are all highly interconnected to each other. And there's a really fascinating stuff showing that carbohydrate metabolism is more indirectly related to fat metabolism. And generally those are taught as completely you know, sort of separate things, you know, they overlap here in electron transport chain, yada, yada, yada. Um, but what we're learning is that they're all sort of related to each other and they're all kind of turning on at different rates depending on what we're doing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> it makes sense. Um, and let's talk a little bit about uh, recovery as well. So what are some advanced recovery techniques that uh, you use in your practice? The, the biggest two would be one... Like have a decent training plan, mm. <laughs> which I know sounds like 
a shocker because I've had a few you know, higher level athletes that come in and they're like, oh, you know, I need all this super advanced recovery stuff. And you're like, you eat like a bird, you sleep seven hours a night and you're training way too much. Mm. Right. So, <laughs> right. you know, let's eat some more calories. Let's get some more sleep. Let's pull back on your training a little bit because like all the recovery work in the world isn't going to save you. It's just it's just not. Mm. Um, but, you know, once you get some of those stuff, you know, under control, the other one I look at a lot is what is your VO2 max, right? Mm. So volume of oxygen you can run through the system or what, how big is your aerobic engine? Because a lot of, especially strength and power athletes, some of them it's very good, some of them it's not. But the aerobic system is the main system that's going to, you know, replete and bring back ATP, your levels of the currency your body uses for energy. And if that's real low, like I tell clients, it's like if you have a three-cylinder Yugo and you're just trying to redline it to the grocery store all the time, like you're putting a huge amount of stress on your body to get some okay performance out of it. Like you'd be better getting a 10-cylinder engine, you can put the RPMs at like a fraction and get that level of performance out. Hmm. So what you'll find is you can, even with strength training, recover faster from set to set day to day you can do more work you can do a higher quality of work um so that's the second thing i'll i'll look at <clears throat> and if it's real low then we'll need to do something to kind of um, address that and bring it up so after that like you got kind of the basics down your aerobic system is pretty good there are some advanced stuff you can play with um i do like sauna um sauna appears to be quite beneficial there's no counteractive effects because the other thing you don't want to do is provide some new fancy quote unquote recovery method that screws up the adaptation you were trying to get, mm. right? Which can happen a little bit. Um, sauna doesn't really seem to do that unless you get too stressful with it. Um, the biggest one is also, which I got from my buddy, Cal Dietz, University of Minnesota from Triphasic. I was asking him one day and I was like, hey, you know, like what is like the best recovery method you use with like your advanced athletes and your professional guys? And he has access to all, you know, all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. And he's like, have them do a 20 minute walk, like two hours after they're done training. I was like, Oh, that's what I found too. Like just <laughs> simple walking, right. Simple. You can get fancy and yeah, if you have to get on a plane, get Norma tech boots and do all this other stuff, but like, just go walk outside, you know, just mm -hmm. get Sun some, you know, good movement. Sunshine. Sun um, right? just some, some gradual water immersion is yeah. pretty mixed. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sunshine, optical stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, cold water immersion is mixed. Um, I'll have people try it if they're a strength and power athlete. Generally, they report that they feel better. Their performance metrics are a little bit better. There's some literature showing that if your goal is just, you know, all out 100% muscle hypertrophy, doing it immediately after training may not be the best. Caveat with that is that it was 10 to 20 minutes at 50 degrees done immediately after. And even then, I, I wanted for like the Fizz Flex course, I wanted to like, okay, what does that mean in English, right? So. If I want to maximize muscle to the highest degree and I'm going to get in my cold plunge immediately and I'm going to do it for 20 minutes at 50 degrees, how much muscle is that really costing me? Like if my maximal gains as a natural athlete were, let's say, on the high end, like a, a pound per month, am I losing half a pound? Am I losing three quarters of a pound? Do I lose an ounce? And we don't have enough data to say what that actually is because mm -hmm. um, it was muscle fiber studies. There was some DEXA stuff done, which doesn't have quite enough uh, ability to see it. Uh, Greg Hoff's lab did a study that showed no difference actually um, in it. So the answer is we don't know. We know mechanistically it does change muscle protein synthetic rate. 
Um, paradoxically, in healthy individuals, I can't find any good data that it does change inflammation. Doesn't mm. appear to, even though everybody claims right. that it does. Right. Yeah. Um, unhealthy populations, that may be completely different. Um, so again, yeah, kind of just depends on you know what you're trying to do. And in general, my little gauge is if athletes tend to like it, they'll do it more. And shocker, it tends to work better. I <laughs> could be 100% placebo, right? right? But do I really care? No. Right. As yeah. a clinician or practitioner, probably not. Like if Bob says he's, you know, kicking ass and he loves doing uh-huh. whatever. Right. And he's doing better. Cool, man. Go for it. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, on the heels of that, I mm-hmm. want to talk a little bit about wearable devices, things like HRV mm-hmm. or Aura Rings. Do you use those with your clients or do you recommend people use them or do you find that people become obsessed with those metrics and it kind of is counterproductive? Yeah, so I do use them all the time. I've got a Garmin watch. I have an Aura Ring. I mm-hmm. use athlete in the morning. Uh, part of my PhD dissertation was on uh, heart rate variability, so I started doing some of that stuff like 15 years ago. Nice. And, I mean, overall, I'm a huge fan of heart rate variability. I've looked at, God, thousands upon thousands of it. Because when the iFleet system came out, God, almost probably nine years ago now, I just started using it on everyone because I was just so fascinated that, you know, equipment that we paid 10 grand used for in the lab, we could get on a smartphone now right. and have people do it on a daily basis. So it was just right. like, this is crazy. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I do find it's useful, right? So heart rate variability will tell you the status of the autonomic nervous system, how much is parasympathetic, breast digest recovery, how much is sympathetic, more on the stress side. The caveat is that, especially now, I see more neurotic athletes where I've had more than a few of like, just don't check any of your four devices. Don't send me any data. Just, you're not that fragile. You'll live. Let me know how you do. And at first they just, ah, like lose their mind. Right. Because they would send you, and, and I like Aura. I've got an Aura ring. I think it's super useful. Oh my God, my deep sleep last night was seven minutes less than today. Like, I don't know if I can train. It's like, <laughs> bro, you're fine. Trust me, you're going to be completely fine. Yeah. It's probably not even that accurate from the device. You just can't pick up that resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do find it is good for awareness. So some people on the other end of the spectrum are, I just train every day no matter what. And you can watch their performance drop, but they don't make the connection that they're just there's too much stress in their life. Mm-hmm. You start showing them heart rate variability data, and they see the the stress line change, and they're like, "Oh, so that's really happening." Like, yes, yeah. this yeah. is a physiologic marker of your mm-hmm. body saying, "Please help me, I am stressed." Yeah. But they've been sort of taught, you know, just work harder, go grind through it, you know, and. I'm sometimes guilty of this, you know, just listen to more death metal, drink more coffee, everything will be fine, just work harder. Um, and that works up until a point where it doesn't work, and then you're you're kind of in a world of hurt. <laughs> right. Well, and I wonder, too, you know, given what you just said, that sympathetic, parasympathetic, that autonomic balance, um, would that be considered another one of your physiologic systems that should be subject to flexibility? Yeah, I mean, I... I thought about adding it in, mm. but the hard part was that I viewed it more as a regulatory system that's responding to an effect, uh, yeah. not necessarily oh, yes. a system that your body has to hold. Right. Because if you look at the, the gain ranges you can get on heart rate variability on people that are still upright, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Like the gain ranges on most homeostatic systems is really, really tight. Yeah. So I view it more as, and it's a really good question. 
And I view it more as an output of all the things that you're putting into your system, right? Mm -hmm. So an example, if you have someone who's not as resilient, you have them do repeated wind gates on a rower, like get on, do 20 seconds on, 20 seconds off, do 10 rounds. Call me in the morning, let me know how you feel. You know, someone who's a really high trained, you know, well-conditioned athlete, probably pretty resilient, their HRV may not move much that next day. Um, people who are not as well-trained, it's gonna look like it went off a cliff, mm. right? And again, it doesn't mean that that type of training is bad. It just means that some people are trained to handle that amount of stress and some people aren't. And you'll find that stressors are also very specific a lot of times too. Um, so one of the things I did early on with clients, I had a, a natural a bodybuilder guy and he kept getting you know injured, had all these weird injuries show up, super strong dude, you know, nutrition was spot on, was doing his PhD in the field, super, super bright guy, but he was doing kind of more heavy lifting and then would do kind of volume hypertrophy stuff after. And so he said, hey, let's do this experiment. So we had him do just heavier lifts, you know, just a triple on like trap bar deadlifts and some bench press and pretty impressive numbers for two days after his HRV was just wrecked. Mm. His sleep was good. His nutrition was mm. good. Everything was good. So we let him reset. And we said, okay, just do compound exercises. And he did like 40,000 pounds of volume in the gym. HRV barely moved the next two days. Mm. Right. And his performance looked good on, you know, the triples. It wasn't off. His mm -hmm. was, you know, deadlift didn't look like a pooping dog or anything. It was nothing right. weird. It was just for whatever reason, he can do a ton of volume and recover. You start putting a lot of intensity on him, it just not so good. And so you'll you'll find little differences like that in athletes where certain things they can just recover from a lot faster than other people. And for his goals, like volume is probably gonna be better anyway. Um, so HRV I like because it gives me a way of looking at what was the response of the system. Because not everyone is gonna respond to the exact training, nutrition, you know, cold water, stressors, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then we can kind of play with that. If he wanted to be a power lifter, then okay, we're probably gonna have to figure out, can we do more high quality work? And what is kind of the limiter? Is it an aerobic thing? Is it your nervous system? Is there something going on? Because your goal then would be to lift the heaviest weight possible. Mm -hmm. um, so it gives you a way of measuring the output of the system, which then allows you to change the input to get a better response. Yeah, that makes sense. That yes. makes perfect sense too. And it, it, I think you answered the question beyond that too, which was going to be like, is can a person who maybe can ch change from one to the other, I guess, is that, or is that more on board, like um, something specific where they're always going to have maybe a preference uh, physiologically for, uh, like you said, volume versus intensity or something like that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, my hypothesis is that it is plastic. It can be changed, but to what degree, mm -hmm. right? I mean, like you, if you hung around with any of the like freaks in the NFL, like the first time I met some of these, you know, especially linemen in other positions, these massive sides of beef with eyes that are, you know, 300 plus pounds. And my assumption was, hmm, that guy's super big and strong, but probably not that fast. And then you see him do like certain drills and skills. You're like, whoa, holy crap. <laughs> how did a human that size move yeah. right. that fast? Right. And you realize that there's just some freaks out there <laughs> and like yeah a lot of them train hard some do some don't but you know how to me it's always been fascinating like the human body is so plastic but to what range mm -hmm. right yeah. you have some people who 
you know, go to the gym and look at weights and just get bigger. You know, other people are, are kind of doing everything quote unquote right. They still make progress, but not at the rate of someone else, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of variability and I don't think we're quite at the place of saying, okay, yeah, you don't respond quite as well to hypertrophy per se. You need to do X protocol. Like we're so far away from that right now. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I will say, Dr. Mike T. Nelson, my brain is exploding. And if you're out there listening There's to so this podcast great information. and oh your brain is also exploding, just wait <laughs> until you go to Dr. Mike T. Nelson's website, MikeTNelson.com. There are blogs. There are certifications like he was just describing. There's his podcast. There's so much information. So I'm going to encourage all of our listeners to check out your website and also check out the Flex Diet podcast, which is phenomenal. And we can't thank you enough for coming back on the show. But before I do let you go, mm. we do have one last question. Yeah. Then I'm going to kick to Michael Chapman. Yeah, we have a silly the question fireball. called the Fireball. And this one is specifically teed up for you, Dr. Mike <laughs> T. Nelson. Uh, Patty and I are aware that you do some uh, what's called kiteboarding. And so my question yes. for you is, uh, what is the best soundtrack for the kiteboarding? Is it Tool, Metallica, or Anthrax? Ooh, I like all the options too. Uh, if I had to pick kiteboarding, I'd actually probably go with with tool. Okay. Because it's so I think a tool. I think of it's just enough predictable, but yet unpredictable that it sounds really good. Yeah. Right. You know, like you you you're not like you hear a new tool album. You're not a hundred percent sure what you're gonna hear, but it's just predictable enough that you like it and it doesn't sound like something horrible. It sounds pretty amazing. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so that's kind of like, to me, like kiteboarding where there's enough, you're trying to do something, but you're interacting in a semi-unpredictable environment and mm-hmm. you're not really sure what's going to be next. Uh, and I love Anthrax and the new Metallica is great, but to me, those are much more predictable. Like you kind of a little bit know what to expect, especially with Anthrax is like one of my favorite bands of all times. Um, so yeah, 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 great question. I love that. <laughs> no, great analysis. Too. That, that is was great. Awesome. <laughs> I mean, wow, that's like almost like he really thought about this one. It was off the top of his head. <laughs> but again, Dr. Mike T. Nelson, we can't thank you enough for coming on. Again, check out his website, MikeTNelson.com. Check out the Flex Diet podcast. And thank you so much. Hopefully, this is one of many more to come. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate all the the time and the homework and all the wonderful questions too. That was awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, great stuff. So I just have to say that not only is a super informative conversation, I think mm-hmm. that we just had, at least for me, I mean, I enjoyed Absolutely it. for me uh, too. But like interest, like fun. I feel like that was a fun, <laughs> interesting conversation. You know what I mean? I think that's what makes him such a great teacher because he's down to earth. He explains it on your level. Yeah. It's, he's just great. He's got good analogies. <laughs> he certainly does. Speaking of the, the bowling thing. Go ahead. I've I'm, seen you bowl. I'm not a terrible bowler. I've seen you bowl. Um, I'm pretty bad. I should use the bumpers. Next time on The Lab Report, Lacey Dunn. Functional medicine dietitian who's also going to become your hormone fairy god. No doubt. She's got so much information. Bring your explode brain caps. That's right. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. What's a slowed brain cap? I would think like if you put a cap, it would prevent your brain from exploding. Exactly.
Exactly. So that's what you want to do, like a helmet. It's like a helmet, except it keeps your skull... From exploding. Exactly. It, it keeps your skull attached to your head. Right. Because even if there's an explosion, it's just going to be inside the helmet then. No, no, no. It prevents the exploding. The exploding of the brain. But the brain's inside your skull. That's right. So the brain can explode, and then you're saying the helmet will pre- prevent your skull from going to a million fragments. All of it. All of it. But then you can never take the helmet off. Patty, it's not a real thing. Oh. 